Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Abigail Favale, author of the recently published Genesis of Gender. Let's get a quick product placement shot there. Uh, a Christian Theory. Dr. Favale was a Dean of Humanities and Professor of English at George Fox University and is now a Professor of the Practice in the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and Concurrent Professor of Theology at Notre Dame. A Catholic convert with an academic background in gender studies, Abigail writes and speaks regularly on topics related to women and gender from a Catholic perspective. Dr. Favale, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Good to be here. Third time's a charm. We yes. tried to do this like twice before, but my family keeps getting sick. So, but you're healthy. The kids are healthy. Mm -hmm. Yes, finally. Fantastic. Uh, do tell us a little about your family. How many kids do you have? How old are they? All those things. So I have four kids and the lineup is 10, 8, 5, and 3. So I just actually this past weekend, my two-year-old turned three. So I've got to get used to saying three. <laughs> yeah. So three boys, one girl. Oh, man. I, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Winston Brady. He's our dean of academics at Thales. He has three sons and his wife is pregnant with their fourth child and uh, he's they're breaking the trend the fourth Ooh. one's gonna be a girl so that's uh, always exciting to hear uh, how how families uh, end up uh, well I I'm so excited that we were able to make this work uh, in part because I read your book and absolutely love it um, I know we talked about it a little bit over email I just finished writing a dissertation on CS Lewis and gender theory and mm -hmm. I was really excited to read your book in part because I thought there was a huge gap in uh, the current writings on gender from a Christian perspective. Nobody had really a positive vision of gender. There are all kinds. It's not hard at all to find people writing about how bad transgender stuff is or how that right. violates biblical norms and so on. It's really hard to find anybody writing today who has a clear, positive vision of masculinity as a good thing, of femininity as a good thing, and able to talk about that. And that, in my view at least, is what your book does really, really well. Uh, so I was really excited to see you had written this book because uh, I, I don't think my version would be nearly as good, but uh, I'm not going to try to write that now because you wrote the book. No, 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 no. There's room for more than one book on this topic for sure. Excellent. Well, why don't we start off with kind of a big, broad question. Um, why do we need a Christian theory of gender? Well, I mean, for all the reasons you said, in a way, like, um, I guess one thing I would say is that what's happening in our culture right now is in some ways an opportunity to do just that, right? To actually think deeply about something maybe we've just taken for granted or that we have thought of as so ordinary that there's so much more to say or even have interpreted badly in the past, right? So um, I do think there's a great need for a positive, a positive vision. Um, but it's also not a tertiary kind of issue when it comes to the faith, especially if we think about how much anthropology matters in the Christian understanding of reality. And anthropology, I mean, just the understanding of what a human being is. Well, it turns out human human being only a human being only exists in the abstract. Like when we talk about human beings, they are always sexed, right? So that means our anthropology is incomplete without a further deep reflection on what it means to be these two modalities of being human, right? What it means to be human qua woman, human qua man, and then 
the not just the temporal meaning of that, but the the eternal meaning and the sacramental meaning. So um, I think it's it's deeply important because the human person is deeply important in Christianity and the human person is gendered. And by gendered, I mean sexed here. You know, I'm using those terms interchangeably. Yeah. It, it does. It does clear up a lot of confusion to just go and use those relatively interchangeably. I, I oh my gosh. I know we could like, I could go on and on about the linguistic confusion. So I just want to be care. I just want to be like clear on the outset. Like if I'm using gender in a kind of a positive sense and I'm not explicitly critiquing an idea of gender, I mean it as mm -hmm. woman or man. I, I did a little bit of digging in the Oxford English Dictionary, and there, there was, uh, they kind of trace the, the, I don't know who exactly put the entry on gender together, but they traced a really interesting linguistic uh, development across the early 20th century, where prior to that, sex was the word that was used for masculine and feminine, uh, and not, and usually and there were other words used for the actual sex act. As you get into the mid, early to mid 20th century, there's a linguistic pattern shift where sex gets used much more for the act and gender sort of absorbs that role in language. And then of course you hit the fifties and sixties and there are gender theorists who start doing all kinds of other stuff, but, and it, it, it just gets really confusing. So I think we can have this conversation with those as, uh, as synonyms that will be hopefully uh, a lot more clear. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. What you're, uh, the, I've not thought about the fact that human beings itself is the that idea is an abstraction, and that every person that you meet is either male or female, and that 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 meaning becomes really really significant. Um, walk us through the two paradigms that you develop in your book. Uh, what is the Genesis paradigm, and how is it different from the gender paradigm? Yeah. So I yeah I sketch out these two different paradigms or, in other words, interpretive frameworks, ways of understanding what is real, um, the gender paradigm and the Genesis paradigm. So I'll actually start with the gender paradigm, just because that's how I often do it. So that'll be easier for me to, <laughs> to just rattle up. Um, so you kind of began to, you know, sketch out part of it right there, which is this um, kind of emergence in the mid 20th century of a new understanding of gender. And I, I start this in I kind of start that telling with Simone de Beauvoir, even though she doesn't actually use the term gender. She has this famous line that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman, right? So she she begins to distinguish between woman as a social construct and um, femaleness, right? As just the kind of biological reality of being female. And that distinction becomes the, the kind of seed of gender theory. So then in, in feminist thought, you have um, a distinction between sex as biology and gender as a social construct. And then once we get into kind of postmodern gender theory in the 90s, um, things get even more interesting where sex itself is seen as a construct, right? So to, in, to sum up, I guess, the gender paradigm and to then contrast it with the Genesis paradigm, um, they have different views of creating, like who is doing the creating. Um, so in the Genesis paradigm, there's a creator, which means we are creatures. So there's a kind of givenness to our nature. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in the gender paradigm, it's human beings who do the creating. So in the gender paradigm, there really is no creator. There's, it's either explicitly or implicitly a, a godless, a godless paradigm. And in fact, I kind of argue that it's the, the human being kind of takes the divine role by creating meaning, especially the meaning of the self and also using language in a way to construct meaning rather than to name what is 
what is created by God. Um, so there are differing views of language. There's differing views of reality. So in the gender paradigm, reality has to be made meaningful. It doesn't carry its own intrinsic meaning. Um, whereas in the Christian paradigm, reality is a gift, right? So it comes with this meaning. And we are part of that meaning, right? We are part of creation. Um, and let's see. So sexual difference then takes on a very different role in these two paradigms. So in the gender paradigm, sexual difference really is seen as just a construct. Um, so these are categories that human beings have come up with and then imposed upon the world um, rather than something that actually names a real phenomenon in the world. But in the Genesis paradigm, sexual difference is part of God's self-revelation. So it has not only temporal significance, but also sacramental significance, right? Because it um, it's like a, it's a sign um, that we carry in our very bodies of what we're made for, this interpersonal communion, right? So if you compare Genesis, the Genesis creation narratives to other creation myths, it becomes really apparent that Genesis is weirdly, weirdly interested in sexual difference and it presents it as very positively. So in the kind of two creation accounts, Genesis one, then Genesis two and three, um, the apex of God's creative action in both narratives is not just the creation of human beings, but actually the sexual differentiation of human beings, right? So in the, in Genesis one, that happens simultaneously. You just get this little poetic kind of gloss there. But in Genesis 2, there's actually the creation of a human being. And then it's like, oh, this isn't complete yet, right? And so then it's only when there's this two-ness, these two modes of being human that are capable of interpersonal communion that God's creative work is complete. So um, sexual difference has a much higher meaning and status in, in the Genesis paradigm. It's not this limiting construct that has to be overcome, but it's actually... Um, a part of who we are that signals what we're what we're made for. And then so freedom, right? So this leads to different understandings of freedom, um, where in the gender paradigm, freedom is about transgression. It's about pushing past limits. It's about blurring boundaries. And then in the in the gender paradigm or the Genesis paradigm, sorry, um, freedom is about belonging. It's about mm -hmm. recognizing our role in creation and then becoming what we are, if that makes sense, rather than becoming, deciding what we are and becoming that, if that yeah. Right. There's, that's, that's a beautiful way to describe that. I think that uh, I, I'm hearing slight uh, correspondence with some of the Kierkegaard's more interesting passages, maybe in uh, Fear and Trembling, where he talks about uh, becoming who you are becoming and that sort of idea. But he, he has buried in his thought, this sense that you are an essence. The essence can't really change. But over the course of your life, your ethical choices, the, the true, uh, this is from either or, he talks about the, the true ethical task of human nature is to become the fullness of that essence. Yes. And you, you only really perceive that through this winding path of choices. And the, the person who's really philosophically aware and awake understands both what his task is and what he's doing in that and most people are completely unaware of that. I, I'm hearing some of that in what you're describing. I don't know if you've done anything with Kierkegaard, but it, it sounds similar. No, I mean, that's interesting. I I mean, I was a philosophy undergrad and I remember having a Kierkegaard phase, but I don't, I have, I have most recently been um, spending a lot of time with Edith Stein. And so I've been drawing on her idea of like dynamic essentialism where it's, yes, we have an essence, but it's not like this set program. It's something we actually have to cultivate 
actively through our the exercise of our will and our reason. And um, so, yeah, we we have a nature, but that nature is something that needs to be cultivated. Yeah, I think that's that's a really helpful way to describe it. I, I want to jump back for a moment to your uh, that, that idea of two modes of being human. Uh, there's is there something Trinitarian in even those modes of being human that kind of just as the it's essential to Christian theology that God, the Father, God, the Son and God, the Holy Spirit are all fully God. And yet each is uh, itself or himself uh, as each is himself a unique member of the Trinity. Um, is there something there, there's I've not thought about that until you, you described it that way, but there's both male and female are representing God in these different modes and yet they're connected to each other. Do you see anything kind of corresponding to the Trinity in there in that connection? So I'm I usually see that what's what's happening in the the Trinitarian connection is that um, that sexual difference in human beings and that capacity for interpersonal communion is an image of the Trinity, right? Because the Trinity is based, you know, is an interpersonal communion that's life-giving, right? And so we carry that in our sexual difference that is life, you know, it can create a third, right? So it can kind of become fruitful and exceed itself. Um, but I don't know, I would have to sit with with your idea more to see, I mean, there's, there's it's different because the, the role of, obviously, you know, it's different, but the role of person is different because mm -hmm. in the Trinity, we have three persons who are nonetheless one God, right? So the nature is one. And then, okay, so you've got two persons. They're both sexuate. They're, so they're different, differently sexed, but they're also, they share the same nature in the sense that they share the same human nature, right? Um, but they're distinct beings, which the Trinity isn't, right? So you, you'd have to be careful with this. But I think, yeah, I think it's interesting, the connections you're making. I was, I'm always a little hesitant to bring up a, a Trinity connection just right. because it's so, feels like there's pitfalls of heresy and every, even Oh my gosh, totally, time. totally. I probably just committed like five heresies in this sentence. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, hopefully we can get some uh, some priests who are uh, want to yeah. write in and uh, correct some, our, our on-the-spot jazz theology, but... <laughs> Um, let's, uh, what, one other kind of uh, intro question, then we'll get to some more specifics from your book. Um, I, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit of your, your personal journey. Cause I'm, I, I'm fascinated by, uh, I, I previously read Rosaria Butterfield's, um, uh, kind of biography, biographical, uh, story, the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. Your story, your book reminded me a bit of hers and I've not read your first book. Uh, Genesis mm -hmm. of Gender was the first one I've read. But you had done an immense amount of academic formation already kind of in feminism and gender study and then came to faith uh, and, and then saw, found those two things integrating. So tell us, tell us a little about that journey and where you see those two kind of complementing each other in a way. Yeah, so um, I was raised an evangelical Christian. And then as an undergrad, I became really interested in feminist thought. Um, so for, for whatever reason, I don't know if I... Sometimes I like psychoanalyze myself, like, why am I so interested in this question? And I, I wonder if maybe I've always had a profound sense that like, oh, I'm a girl, but also I never really felt like I belonged around girls in a way. And anyway, so I think I've had to wrestle with this, like, what does it mean to be a girl? What does it mean to be a woman? And kind of searching, questing for an answer, a deeper answer on that. And so as an undergrad, I thought, feminist thought, this is what I've been looking for. Um, and so... 
like I mentioned, I was a philosophy major. And then by the time I graduated, I had really started to hone in on French feminist philosophy, especially. Um, and so I, I went, but I've also, well, I've also been very interested in literature, right? So I have this kind of like philosophical, but literary sensibility that is really kind of inseparable. Um, so it's been hard to choose like how to specialize in things. So what I ended up doing really is to, to follow the thread of feminism and then in both philosophical and theological and literary spheres. So that's what I did in graduate school. I studied feminist philosophy and literary criticism and women's writing and also gender theory. Um, and during that time, I was not really a Christian in, in any meaningful sense of the term, certainly not practicing but I was thinking about God a lot. So my dissertation was really focused on the concept of incarnation. It was, it was focused on how women writers are doing theology in their fiction and revising religious, like theological concepts. And so I was very much thinking about God, but I wasn't, I didn't necessarily believe in God. <laughs> um, I had a very postmodern kind of out, outlook um, that, you know, there's some kind of divine spiritual reality out there somewhere, but all we have are human stories and human ways of trying to access it that are always incomplete, right? So I, I had really let go of, a, of the idea of a God who actually discloses himself, like a God who comes down to us, like a God who breaks into our language and our stories and, and, and reveals himself, who has given us, in a sense, his own story. Um, and uh, then at the end of my 20s, I became a mother for the first time. And that that really opened me up in a way that I think I just had not been open. Um, and it disrupted my feminism enough for this spiritual longing to kind of resurface. And then I really abruptly became Catholic. It's a weird story. I mean, it was like super abrupt. Like, like October 2013, beginning of the month, wasn't even thinking about becoming Catholic. By the end of the month, I was in RCIA. Like that's anyway. So if you want the full weird story, I did write a book about it. Um, but what's interesting is that for me, this question of gender and this question of woman has always been bound up in faith. So when I became Catholic, the questions that I really had to wrestle with were the woman related questions. You know, I had to, I really had to wrestle with the priesthood. I had to wrestle with contraception and Catholic theology of marriage and sexuality. Um, and that took a, about a couple of years for that to really, for I would say for a complete intellectual conversion to happen. Um, and then once that happened, I was like, well, what do I do now? Like I've built this whole career on basically being a kind of postmodern feminist academic. And now I have this almost completely different worldview you know, I just, I had, honestly, it was kind of a time of despair a little bit. I just mm. thought, well, I've, I've kind of wasted my education. I have to now totally reinvent and, you know, um, but what, I mean, it's turned out to be the opposite in a way, because I began to discover the rich thinking about gender that existed in the Catholic intellectual tradition mm. that I never had access to. It wasn't even that it was like debunked or dismissed in my feminist education. It like literally was not even acknowledged. You know, and so now I'm like reading Edith Stein and Prudence Allen and Theology of the Body. And I'm like, where has this been all my life? Um, so then I began to see like, oh, actually, this this kind of trajectory I'm on can be fulfilled in a new way 
in, in, in the Catholic realm. And, and then the gender stuff began in a, on a cultural level to really heat up. And so I saw um, a need to be able to kind of help people navigate that. Um, and I guess I'm bilingual <laughs> in the sense that like, I know how to speak Butler and John Paul II. So I'll give it a go. It's a very um, yeah. rare combination. And <laughs> I, I find that people either are very, very attuned to all of these questions of, of gender, and they're, they they picked up a, even a, a layman's specialty in, in reading and understanding some of this, or they're just completely clueless and are unable to even fathom the question. So the I find your ability to bring those two worlds together uh, just very helpful. Uh, I think it's the, the ability to straddle Butler and uh, uh Carol Wachtila is a, that's a pretty rare, rare, rare skill. Um, I want to ask you a different question then. Uh, and this is, so for some listeners, this question may seem kind of obvious. For others, uh, I'm hoping it will, it will prompt further thought. But um, I found one of the interesting parts of your book really being about how you focus on how we think about sex today differently than previous generations did. Um, Sex has become a function today of medical control and really reduced down to mere pleasure. Um, in your view, how have we gotten sex wrong as a culture? And what do you see as the right way to think about sex? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I guess one place to, I mean, obviously this starts, wait, when you want to start the story in terms of intellectual history is always like, you're kind of jumping into the middle of things, but um I think that we we can't underestimate or overestimate how profoundly contraception has reshaped our understanding of sex. And that's a that's a part of the story I tell in the book, because in some ways, these shifting concepts of sexuality and gender are not just about conceptual revolutions, but they're also about technological revolutions. Right. So there's a very long standing human history of human beings trying to overcome our nature to push against the limits of our nature rather than to see our nature as a gift. Um, but it it takes on a new kind of tenor in the 20th century um, with contraception. And so I think contraception has affected us in so many ways, but one of the profound but maybe less recognized ways is the way that it's reshaped our cultural imagination and also our kind of self, the way we think about sex um, in, our, in our own kind of default mode, I guess, where we think of ourselves as sterile, right? And we think of sex as sterile. Um, we, we no longer think about like women and men as in terms of generativity, because it's almost like that, like generativity, like different generative potential, that is the ground of what differentiates a man from a woman. Like that's where it all starts. And that's exactly the ground that we've, we've kind of forgotten. Now we, we jump to other things like what we look like or how we behave, right? And kind of forget this, this generative mode. Um, and then once, once, that, once sex in terms of the sex act is unmoored from generativity, then that just has like profoundly sweeping effects in our culture. Um, and it's really changed, I think, how we think about sex in terms of just, yeah, recreational, in terms of something that's very casual and kind of meaningless, right? Instead of something that, is perhaps like the most profound human activity because it's the only human activity that's capable of bringing another human being into existence. Like that's 
really profound. Like, and that gives sex this gravity that we've totally lost, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think it's had, I think it's had profound effects. Um, and it's related to this confusion about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is this forgetting this cultural forgetting of generativity. Well, let, let's follow that for a second then. Cause, uh, I, I was, I avoided science whenever I could in my own education, which is my own personal failing. Uh, but I, there was a section of your book where I felt like I was back in a high school biology classroom, uh, where, uh, and I wrote, added one of the lines to my question sheet. Um, you, oh, which I also thought was really interesting. You, you do give a direct uh, answer to Matt Walsh's question of what is a woman. He's made a lot of heyday out of that. So uh, maybe he'll hear that I shouted him out on the show and retweet this episode, which would be great. Uh, I'm still kind of tacitly trying to get the Daily Wire to unofficially sponsor the show. That has not happened yet, but maybe it will someday. Uh, but you tell us uh, on page 120, a woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. Walk us through a bit of what you're getting at with that definition and uh, uh, feel free to be as biologically oriented as as, as, as helpful, but uh, take us back to biology class and where do, where do gametes and gamete production come into the story? Mm, okay, right. So yeah, um, that's, that's the definition I give. And honestly, I think that definition of womanhood is pretty unassailable. Um, or femaleness, you might say, because, you know, oftentimes you'll hear the argument, well, what about a woman who's had a hysterectomy? Or what about a woman who's infertile, right? And that's why the word potential there is so crucial. So in other words, every woman has an innate potential to create life within her, to generate within herself, right? Now that potential might never be actualized, and women or girls begin their lives with it being unable to be actualized. And we end our lives if we get grow to old age with it unable to be actualized. Okay. But that potential never goes away. So that potential is part of, and it, it influences and structures our lives, right? Um, because that potential relies on the organization of the entire body. So this is something that's important because I think one, there are a lot of misunderstandings about sex. And one of, one of the misunderstandings is to kind of um, reduce sex to something like genitalia or even just the reproductive system without thinking about sex as almost like a body plan. It's like the plan of the entire body, right? So it's impossible to change that plan. So it begins like the nucleus of every cell participates in that, that bodily reality, as well as the structure of the person as a whole. And it affects what our, how our brains are. It affects things like our skeletal structure. It affects our immune system, right? So women's immune systems have to be different because we grow alien organisms inside of us, <laughs> right? So not actually aliens, but you know what I mean? Like we need to have a, an immune system that can handle that. Um, so it affects the whole person and it's an organization of the entire body. It's a structural determinant of the entire body according to a specific potential. And what's interesting is that even though people might bring up infertility as like a, what about infertility? Well, infertility actually signals that innate potential, right? Because it's a woman, so a woman who has that body plan, who can't get pregnant, who is deemed infertile. A man who can't get pregnant is not deemed infertile because he never had that innate potential to begin with. So you can only be infertile if you have an innate potential that for some reason is not being actualized. So the definition I'm giving, you know, an infertile woman is, or a woman who just never has children, whether or not she's um, fertile, 
is just as much a woman as a woman who has 10 children, right? Uh, because it's all about the the, the bodily organization according to a given potential. Um, so in humans, we're mammals, right? So that has to do with gestation on the female side and then insemination on the male side. Now, if you go to less organ, like less highly organized kinds of sexually reprodu reproducing species, it's really about gametes. Um, so the female gamete is the large gamete and then there's small gametes, right? And that is hard and fast binary among sexually reproducing species. There's no third gamete, there's no third sex, right? And when it comes to mammals, you know, there's, um, I talk a lot actually in the book about disorders of sexual development. So atypical um, manifestations of femaleness and maleness that can sometimes impact fertility. But I make the argument that that actually still fits into this definition that I'm giving, right? Because what you have there is still a male or female human being, but there's some kind of irregularity in their sexual development um, that often inhibits that potential to be actualized, but nonetheless, the potential is there, right? So, um, yes. <laughs> also, I could like go on and on, but I find this right. super fascinating. Uh, is that uh, the atypical atypical sexual development? Is that how you would respond to sort of the the intersex objection? Because that's the one that I've heard. Yes. When I've talked about this with friends, they're, that, that's usually kind of the go-to. Well, what about yep. intersex? They've got both and they're they're sort of the right. hermaphrodite. And right. that, that clearly means that gender can't be a binary. Right. So there is such a huge misunderstanding of this, you know, and exactly when people talk about intersex, that what they think they mean is exactly what you said, that there are hermaphroditic human beings. Um, that's not true. There is There has never been a hermaphroditic human being, right? So... Hermaphrodites, by definition, can actualize their own generative potential, right? So even in cases of very complex intersex conditions, you don't have hermaphrodism, right? So there's never been a human being who's, who, ha who is capable of fulfilling both the female and, the, and, uh, and fe male and female generativity, all right? That's just that has never existed. So take that off the table, right? So what are we talking about when we talk about intersex conditions? Um, intersex is a canopy term, right? So it includes over a dozen distinct conditions that can disrupt sexual development. And the vast majority of these do not result in any kind of sexual ambiguity. In fact, what happens is they often become recognized much later in life when, you know, say a woman, like a, a female never gets her period, right? Or a man finds out he's unable, he tries to have kids and he finds out he can't. Okay, so these are males and females, but then again, they, they've, they come to realize they have some kind of, um, something's gone awry in their sexual development um, that gives them a, a disorder of sexual development. But the mistake is then thinking that, oh, well, that means that's not really a female or that's not really a male, right? Which I think is incredibly dehumanizing and also inaccurate. Um, so the vast majority of, of disorders of sexual development do not result in ambiguity. That's really important. Now, the, the, the very small number that do, so we're talking here about 0.018% of births. So in other words, 99.982% of births have no sexual ambiguity, right? Like that's actually shocking to me, honestly. When I think about the sexual development process, like and how easily something could go awry, I'm actually shocked at how stable 
and readily apparent the reality of sex is at birth. But nonetheless, in those, in those more complex um, disorders of sexual development, it's impossible to generalize about them because they are, by definition, unique. You have to look at the person. In other words, you have to look again at the structure of the individual person as a whole to figure out how sex is showing up in that person. And in, in any, I have not found a case again, so I'm open to being proved wrong, but in any case that's been documented, either femaleness or maleness will predominate. And then it's about what does this person need to support their physical health, right? Um, so I think it's really important to realize, like, let me give you an example, actually. So one of the most complex disorders of sexual development is, is mosaicism. And that is actually when you have both XY chromosomes and XX chromosomes showing up in the same individual, depending on which cell you look at, right? So if you just do a genetic test, one genetic test might come up as male, one genetic test might come up as female, right? So you can't say just like, oh, well, mosaicism is these people are never male or never female or always da, da, da. You can't generalize. You have to look at the individual. Okay. So given this, this chromosomal kind of duality, what does the body, what has the body, how has the body actually developed? Right. So a person that I, in the course of um, doing the book, a person that I interviewed, you know, she has mosaicism, but she's female. Like she has one ovary that's, that seems to have some function to it, right? So, and it, and it took, you know, it takes like a team of doctors to kind of look at the whole person and figure out what's going on here, right? So that's what, in those situations, we need to be focusing on the needs of the particular individual and not generalizing about humanity as a whole based on those very specific and by nature particular um, circumstances. So bottom line, Disorders of sexual development should be understood as variations within maleness and femaleness, not as exemptions from maleness and femaleness. And a lot of DSDs, in fact, are actually sex-specific. So only a man can get Klinefelter syndrome, right? Only a female could get like that, have vaginal agenesis, right? So um, that's also an important an important factor. So there's so much misinformation about what the word the term intersex even means. So I guess there's that that two comments in response to that. I mean, first, it uh, reminds me of the the line from the the Psalms that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, that even in the even in those disorders, that 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 the level of detail that you're describing is is just I think fascinating. Mm -hmm. And the the ways in which those details can twist and can be fallen is itself still indicating just how intricately created we we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, but secondly, that it it sounds like I mean. Uh, Goodness gracious, we could do a whole other discussion about the many logical flaws in Judith Butler's thought. But um, this sounds then like a massive logical fallacy committed by Butler, because if I understand it, um, she, she really popularized the idea of intersex uh, kind of breaking the, the gender binary. And in doing so, if you're right that each of these cases is so unique that we need to look at that individual person and we can't generalize, uh, Butler is moving from a particular set of individuals who have specific issues in that in that area, and then generalizing about all of humanity that 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 what we've all experienced and all thought to be certain is in fact not. Is that a is that a reasonable? Now, response to what you're saying is that do you agree with that as a flaw in Butler's thought, or, or am I missing something? 
I think Butler is actually more, more radical than that. So Butler doesn't start her argument from the premise of there are intersex conditions. And so the sex binary is a construct. Um, one of the first, one of the major proponents of, I think the, the intersex, I don't know, the intersex gambit is what I call it in the book, um, is a biologist named Anne Fausto Sterling. So I actually did work on her stuff in graduate school. So I did a, a project on inter intersexuality in, in graduate school. Um, and so what she does, so she, I would say, yes, she makes leaps of logic that don't make sense, right? Um, and one of those is like, so this, you, you'll often hear um, the statistic that 1.7% of people are intersexed. Well, that statistic comes from her work because she basically defines as intersex any deviation from the platonic ideal of maleness and femaleness. So like she would include, in other words, say a woman with polycystic ovarian syndrome who has more kind of male typical hormones than, than normal would be intersexed in her definition, right? So that's, that's what you have to realize is like, okay, that figure includes a lot of people who, again, are like unambiguously male or female, right? So she has a super expansive view. Um, and what I think is valuable about her work, though, which I really liked in graduate school is that so intersex activism first arose with one goal, and that goal was to stop infant genital surgeries on those rare cases of sexual ambiguity at birth. Because prior to this activist effort in the, in the late 90s, um, doc, that the, the approach would be, oh, let's put this kid under the knife. Right. This baby, like, we're not quite sure what to do. This is this baby has a micro penis. Let's just turn it into a vagina. You know, just like wild stuff, um, which, of course, has huge problems. And luckily, that's not that doesn't happen anymore. So that that was um, successful. That intersex activist effort was successful in changing the medical approach to these cases of sexual ambiguity at birth. Um, so in that way, her work, Fausto Sterling's work, shedding light on that, on how there actually has been a kind of social construction effort to take any kind of atypical, say, genitalia and make it into this like ideal of what a penis should look like. And then if we can't achieve that ideal, we just switch them to the opposite sex or whatever, you know, just crazy stuff. Um, so, but the problem then is, is that her work, and then I think she's also contributed to this, has kind of gone down this road of saying that because there are instances of apparent sexual ambiguity at birth, the entire sex binary is a construct, right? And that's, that's just fallacious. Like it's yeah. bad logic, but it's also bad biology, right? Now, Butler, so Butler is like her, her entire project, like her, the premise that she starts from, or the, the goal, I think, of her theoretical work is to denaturalize heterosexuality. That's her goal. So that's kind of her starting premise, that there's nothing natural about, well, there's nothing natural, any, nothing natural, period, in Butler's thought. But especially, there's nothing natural about heterosexuality. And in order to really denaturalize that, you have to denaturalize a stable category of sex, right? So she makes the argument then not she's not she doesn't make it from like an empirical argument um she's she's more coming from this like Foucauldian kind of everything is a construct 
including biological sex, right? And it's an oppressive construct that we have to disrupt, right, intentionally. So that's, so I would say she's even arguing something. But the, what's interesting, though, is that I think, I think Butler, she's more coherent, right, in terms of like the, her premises connecting with her conclusions than a lot of the ideas of gender that I see floating around today. But I think what people don't realize is that even though she's coherent, she's super extreme, what she's saying, right? So, for example, some of her work actually um, argues against the incest taboo, right? Because if you want to denaturalize sexual activity, you can't, like, hold these arbitrary taboos and say, you know, it's unnatural for, you know, a parent to have sex with their child, so she, she even goes there, right? So she's consistent, but it's like a disturbing consistency that I think most people don't really realize. They're like, oh yeah, gender's a performance. Like I'm performing my gender, this is fun. And they don't really realize the kind of like <laughs> radical claims that she's making. Um, uh, we, we, we could spend a lot of time unpacking Judith Butler, but I don't know that I really want to. Uh, she's, she's ultimately kind of empty and meaningless. I'd, I'd rather... Uh, we, we might have to come back and do a different conversation one day on, on Judith Butler. But um, I want to go back to, to your book, though, and you go back to a term you've mentioned a couple times today, uh, and that, that's sacramental. Um, I'd love it if you could uh, talk for a few minutes about uh, your understanding of a sacramental view of, of the body. Uh, mm -hmm. How does it change our approach to, to life, to sex, to gender, uh, to everything, if we think of the body as sacramental rather than in some other, in some other vein? Yeah, I would say this is this is maybe the treasure that I found in Catholic thought that I didn't find anywhere. Like I didn't find it in my upbringing, my Protestant upbringing. It's certainly not in feminist thought, right? Which is which tends by and large to have again a kind of default atheistic or at best agnostic framework. So there's no any any symbolism of the body is a human symbolism, right? The best we can do is to to have something kind of mirror back to us ourselves. So the idea that our bodies are not just temporal, not just meaning meaningful in a temporal sense, but that they actually point toward and and signify their symbols of divine realities, to me is just such a beautiful and profound idea. And the idea of symbol there isn't this kind of postmodern, arbitrary, like merely serving a representational function, but in in I think the the deeper Catholic understanding to symbolize, to, to be a symbol in this way is also to actually participate in what one symbolizes, right? Um, so there's a sense in which as a woman, I'm a living icon of all humankind in relation to the divine, right? And I also have free choice and will, so I can kind of choose to embrace that symbolic meaning and have it be a means of participation in the divine. You know, of course, I can choose to live against it or to reject it, but it exists nonetheless, right? Because it's it's a meaningfulness that's inscribed in our bodies, not something that we that we inscribe ourselves. Um, and yeah, that this to me, I think, is is such a profoundly beautiful, and I don't mean beautiful in this kind of like, you know, oh, it's so pretty. I mean it in this like 
life-altering kind of beautiful way, right? Like it, it, like sometimes this is going to sound so weird. So sometimes I go to this like grocery store cafe to write and it's kind of like raised up in this balcony. And sometimes I will literally just like watch people walk around doing their grocery shopping. And I will like look at a man and I will think like, he is an icon of God. And I will look at a woman who's like, you know, picking out cantaloupes or something. And I'm like, she's an icon, you know, and I'll just like, just kind of rest in the fact that like, this is so beautiful. Like our bodies are, are so, they're so meaningful, right? Because they point to not only the relationship between Christ and the church, between God and humankind, but they also point to, re- to each other, right? So every, every female body is also kind of a, a signpost toward the male and every male body is also kind of a signpost toward the female because what's interesting about human being is there's one kind of potential that we actually can't actualize ourselves fully and that is the generative potential right and so there's something really profound about that as well that there's that our capacity for interpersonal communion requires this um, requires the other you know, to, to fully bring into, to being, but anyway. Yeah. That's such, I think it's such a, that's a beautiful way to describe it. And uh, uh, it reminds me of some of the things that uh, C.S. Lewis does, um, particularly in, in Paralandra, but he, uh, he doesn't use sacramental language, but he has a similar idea, I think, to what you're describing, where he, he envisions the masculine and the feminine as uh, ideas uh, he he kind of leaves it at the level of like Platonic ideas. I think yeah. he, it's not hard to read that as ideas in the mind of God, but he doesn't actually say that. But then every those ideas exist prior to their biological expression. So every man is a participant in that idea of the masculine. And he's got this really kind of cryptic line about um, in that hideous strength where uh, Jane realizes as she meets Ransom that... Uh, she thought she knew what masculinity was, but ransom is a higher level of the masculine. And it probably, he himself is only a signpost pointing to this highest masculinity that is itself in God. Mm-hmm. And the feminine works the same way. So that, that sort of participation in masculinity and femininity uh, is fascinating. I, I love how you worded that. The, the idea of people as icons of God ties right back to the image bearing uh, mm-hmm. And it's what, uh, at the end of Paralandra, where um, Ransom sees Tor, the Adam figure, for the first time, he's just so struck by the fact that here is an image that he sees, and he all of a sudden knows what Malelville, or Jesus, must look like, because he sees the perfect image. And you would think that the temptation would be towards idolatry and worshiping the image, but it's the perfection of the image that you can't confuse the image for the thing itself. And the fact that like that all still exists in the world around us as we interact with each other is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I know exactly what passage you're talking about because I think I actually disagree with Lewis. And I've tried to figure out why. Like, Because I'll read that. And on the one hand, I, I see exactly what you're saying. I'm like, is this what I'm saying? But I'm like, there's something about the way he articulates that hits me funny. And I think it's because... He goes too Neoplatonic with it, right? Like he seems to have this idea of masculinity and femininity as these almost like cosmic abstractions. Mm-hmm. And then he he uses this language of like that are only like like barely or kind of you know imperfectly realized in these con- like material realities. And I almost want to go the other way, 
which is, and for me, I think masculinity and femininity are always, are always in relation to persons. Mm -hmm. So even when they signify the triune God, there's still a personal reality to it. Like it's not an abstract, you know, there's kind of, a yin yang, a cosmic yin yang, and we're these, you know, imperfect instantiations of the yin yang. It's almost like, it, it almost seems like that, like, I want to go the opposite way, like, sure. that, no, like, like, sexual difference among human beings is this, this, like, the highest sign of this kind of personal, interpersonal communion, right? So it's not, it's not this, like, lower you know so i know what you mean and i know i'm being like super finicky here no 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 but it's yeah i think i think like there's something different about a truly sacramental way of understanding it that is a little bit different than that kind of neoplatonic well it, it is yeah. different i mean i think there's the 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 um lewis is definitely i mean he's a i think for most american evangelicals they love lewis until they get to some of the parts where he's a weird anglican <laughs> and they realize that oh dang he's actually Lewis is actually not a Southern Baptist I'm shocked yeah. and but at the same time he's 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 very much an Anglican he's not Catholic and he's not yes. reaching for sacramental language uh, I I would assume intentionally I don't have any evidence for that I've yeah. not met him on sacraments I don't know that he writes about that but I would assume he's fully aware of the the Catholic linking of spiritual and physical in the sacrament and he's intentionally not going there. Right. But there's also something here that's like Plato versus Aristotle. I mean, like and there, right. there's so many places where like those two thinkers are so close. But Aristotle is like that, that uh, the famous picture in the, the, the school of Athens, right, where Aristotle yep. is exactly down, like right here. It's in this earth. I am not going up to some highfalutin metaphysic. I, I know it's what, what what is it right here and now? I think cool. if I can vastly generalize, I suspect Lewis is a lot more platonic. I suspect yes. you're a lot more Aristotelian if, if put into those terms. Is that Yes, is that I think that's very true. And I would say I'm even more Steinian than Aristotelian because I think his, his metaphysics is not quite adequate hmm. to capture the significance of sexual difference as it's presented in scripture. So hmm. anyway. Oh, Fantastic. Well, uh, Dr. Favalli, as we wrap towards the end, uh, uh, my, my show is named for uh, two optimistic impulses or two, two contradictory impulses. Uh, where I usually have on people who are a little bit grumpy about the state of the world as it is, uh, but we're, we're, we're always reaching for, uh, for optimism, not foolishly, but because uh, uh, faith, hope, and love are those three virtues and hope is, is definitely needed in, uh, in interesting or maybe trying times. So with that context, uh, do you see signs of hope on the, the gender horizon? Uh, I, I ran into uh, Jay Richards of the Heritage Foundation at a conference last year where he argued, actually, the gender reassignment surgery has gotten so bad and has become so public that he thinks it might actually force people to realize they don't agree with gender affirming care when they see the results. And the, the, the horror of that is so bad that it might produce a better reaction. Do you agree with that? Or do you see other signs of hope? What, what, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I think the biggest signs of hope that I see in the, the gender medicine sphere is the European turn. So the, the most progressive countries in Europe are one by one conducting systematic reviews. So they've been at this longer than we have, right? So especially the Scandinavian countries like Sweden and Norway and Finland. So they've been doing this kind of medicine for longer than we have. And they've, they're now seeing the fruits of it. And they've, 
they've all conducted systematic reviews of the evidence and concluded the same thing, which is that the clear risks do not outweigh the supposed benefits that um, there's not good evidence for. And so Finland, Sweden, and most recently Norway have all really pulled back on um, invasive, invasive gender medicine, especially for young people, right? Um, and that's happened in the that's happening in the UK as well. So that's where I see like when when people actually look at the evidence, they all come to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a sign of hope, right? Um, even though I don't know how that's going to play out in the US and Canada, um, the US, everything's so hyper politicized that this has now become a culture war issue, which makes it actually very hard for people to just look at the evidence. Right. Because if the evidence doesn't conclude what their tribe thinks, they reject the evidence and uh, vice versa. So um, there's a little bit of uh, optimism and pessimism for you in one in one little package. I'll take it. That's that's great. Um, Well, Dr. Favale, where can people uh, find and follow your work online? That's a good question. I don't really like people to find me and follow me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm half kidding. So I am on Twitter intermittently, right? Um, I've actually been, I I got off Twitter for Lent. And so I haven't really gotten back on because it's been nice not to be on there. And, um, but yeah, I kind of dip in and out and um, I'm, what is my handle? It's Favali abs is my Twitter handle. I usually have to type yeah. it three or four times before I get the combination of syllables correct from Twitter to remind <laughs> me what your handle is. Yeah. Yes. Like abs of steel. My, that was my nickname as a kid was abs <laughs> of steel. So my brother used to call me abs. So Favali abs. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of it. I do. I mean, I have like a website, but I don't really update it very often. I don't know. I'm terrible at this side of things, honestly. I'm on a lot of podcasts though. So right. you could probably like Google my name or whatever in a, in a, on YouTube or a podcast app and get a lot of interviews, but. Well, and yeah. you've now written, we got the first title, uh, which I assume is somewhere in the first couple pages. Maybe not, but you've written two books. Nope. What's your first book called? So my first book actually is an academic book. I published my dissertation, but it's um, pretty heretical, so I won't recommend it, oh, okay. but, um, <laughs> and also just academic, right? So, but my first non-academic book is um, my conversion memoir. It's called Into the Deep and Unlikely Catholic Conversion. And then, of course, you've got the book we've been talking about today, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. Uh, What's next in your writing pipeline? That's a good question. Actually, um, I am wanting to write another book on gender, but to draw out more deeply the kind of Christian vision of gender, and especially getting more masculinity in there. Mm. Um, so like I said, I think there's more than the room for more than one book on this topic. I think I might even have more room for another book on this topic. So we'll, well see yeah, right I, now. I'm, yeah. There, there's definitely, uh, I know there are a lot of good folks doing work on the crisis of fatherlessness. I think there's, there's, uh, a, uh, there's a growing, I don't know quite where what to do with the fact that there are very loud voices like Andrew Tate who are trying to proclaim a certain vision of masculinity. Uh, there are other folks. Uh, I've got uh, Nancy Piercy has a new book on uh, toxic masculinity that I'm reading to review. And uh, so far, she's really good. But uh, there there needs to be we, we need good scholarship on the question of masculinity. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that that's a, that's something you're interested in writing in. Uh, so it's, that's, and that you think there's room for more books on this topic. Cause I think we, 
Uh, it's, yeah. it's been dominated so much by the by progressive scholarship over the last decades that we need good, faithful Christian scholarship to bring God's truth into a confusing area. Yeah. And also for a positive vision, right? Like mm -hmm. that's because there's a lot of critique. It's always easier to be in a critique mode and it's more fun to be like, oh, you're so wrong. <laughs> you know, let me dismantle your ideas, you know, but it's much harder to actually present a vision that's constructive. And so I think there's a huge need for that. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Favale, for joining me today for this conversation on the optimistic curmudgeon. And thank you, listeners and viewers, and especially to our uh, live stream folks uh, for joining us today. My guest this episode has been Dr. Abigail Favale, author and professor focusing on the intersection of Christian theology and gender. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review wherever you watched or listened to it and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.